in my journey since then, I, I, I would hear people say, well, we're not saving lives here. And I'm like, oh, yes, but we are. We are. And, and I say that with love and respect for people like, you know, I, I remember reading an article in the past couple years where, you know, a cancer survivor encountered Jennifer Aniston or a friend of hers encountered Jennifer Aniston and said, I just need her to know that friends kept me alive at the worst time in my life and that laughter is medicine Hmm. and that what we experience as an audience when we are engaging in story is medicine it's just you know and it, it it's so profound to realize or have an epiphany about having this childhood and ceremony and learning the gift of what medicine can do and heal how it can heal people and learning and observing and witnessing what that words are medicine and that the way you speak is as important as what you do and the way you think is as important as how you speak and by god i i will say what we are doing is so important it is so so important for roseanne superno the medicinal impact of story is a deep core belief one that guides and strengthens her in both life and art. In honoring her own storytellers, wisdom keepers, mentors, and teachers, she gratefully acknowledges the shoulders she stands upon and is coming to understand her role in providing the same for those who are following her lead. On the heels of starring in a terrifying new thriller, Cold Road, and beginning the post-production process on her first feature film as writer, director, and producer, Rose continues to navigate her creative adventure with courage and compassion. Thank you for for joining me in conversation today, Um, especially as you're no doubt still basking in the glow of the world premiere screening of your latest film project, Cold Road. I wonder if, if we might start there. And for those who don't have an inside track or much knowledge of the film industry or how it works, they might not realize that as an actor, your work and your formal creative relationship with the film project kind of wraps a long time ago before the, the completed film hits a big screen. Um, in fact, if you're lucky, as I think we'll discover in your case, you, you, you have been, um, you, you may be involved in multiple projects since shooting that film. Um, So I imagine to get to the moment when it finally arrives in a room, like it did last night at the Rio in Vancouver with an audience, it's almost like meeting an old friend, kind of vivid images coming back like yesterday, living alongside memories, almost a kind of a nostalgia already shifting uh, with time. So so tell me, what what was that experience like last night for you and what are those feels? Oh, the feels are so fantastic. Uh, Last night was extraordinary. It was magical. Um, The director uh, texted me this morning and that was the word we used. It was it was magic. It was just Mm. pure magic. And I'm still coming down from all that, enjoying all of it. And it was nostalgic. That's a really good word to use for it. And it's it's funny because uh, for anyone who hasn't been to the Rio Theater, um, 
there is an elevated stage, so you have to walk up it. And at the end of the film, I was in tears. I was emotional. And, and despite the fact that this was not a live performance, like a, like a play, um, it very much felt that way. And I couldn't help but bow at the end. And it was mm. bringing back these memories of being on stage and being a theater kid. And it was, it was, it was um, the way I described it on my social media today is that it was, it was a dream come true and there was nothing mm. more I could ask for in terms of um, an audience experience at a world premiere. People were getting vocal during the show. They were clapping, they were cheering during the film. Wow. Um, And then they like stood up and did a standing ovation at the end, which is just as an actor, you those are moments you truly only dream about. <laughs> those are things that you like literally dream about mm. at night or you fantasize about it when, when you're falling asleep at night. And so it was very fulfilling. I feel very mm -hmm. fulfilled and joyful today. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And um, even as you said, you're coming down from it. I, I want to hold you in it for, for for as long as I can give that to you, because what a wonderful place. And obviously, we can't live in that place of, of high forever. There's other right. things to be done, but um, no rush out of that. Uh, as we move forward, Rose. Well, our conversation is going to delve, I think, more more fully, I hope, richly into you and your process as a human being and as a as a creative artist. Uh, tell take take me on a bit of that journey. I know a little about Cold Road. It's a thriller. It's a scary thriller. Um, and uh, and 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 you were leading that cast. So uh, cast of vehicle as well <laughs> and a dog and a dog <laughs> and a sister so, it's it's a very minimal cast that's, yeah, that's yeah. for sure a very small cast um yeah so cold road is a thriller that is set on an isolated highway in the canadian north and my character tracy is driving down that highway on a 12-hour road trip with her dog caribou and um uh, sorry, in the film, he's, his name is Pretzel. His real name is Caribou. And along the way, she's she's going to say goodbye to her mother on her deathbed, who's on her deathbed. And along the way, a stranger in a semi-truck starts stalking her hmm. and playing games of cat and mouse with a semi-truck and a little sedan on a highway. And she's running out of gas and oh. it's dead of winter and it's terrifying, you know, as it's meant to be because it's a thriller. So people who do go to see it, you know, prepare yourself. You will be white knuckling the seat throughout <laughs> throughout the film. Um, and it's uh, it's a wild ride. And I what I really appreciate about what the filmmaker Calvin Redverse did. He's mm -hmm. an indigenous filmmaker. He's Dene. Uh, he's from uh, up where we filmed around Hay River, which is Treaty 8 and Treaty 11 area. Uh, it's right at the boundary of the two, which is remarkable. Okay. And what he did that I really respect, and I love the direction that filmmakers like uh, he and myself are sort of going in, which is um, how do we tell these like genre-driven 
stories about Indigenous people without making Indigenous the genre, so to speak. So what Kelvin has done is he has taken um, the sort of tropes from really pulpy films from the 70s and 80s, and he put it on the highway, and he just happened to cast an Indigenous woman in the film. It doesn't necessarily, it could be any person who's driving home to go say goodbye to their parents. It's not, you know, there there's light themes that touch on, you know, her background, but that's not what the film is about. This film is for everybody. Right. And he's a remarkable filmmaker in that this film is palatable. I think it has universal themes. I think it's something that people all across the globe can relate to. Um, and it's a heck of a ride. Mm-hmm. Like people are so entertained while they watch it and you could just feel um, what I loved and what I miss as an actress about um, doing more theater because I don't do theater as much as I would like to because you can feel it when you're on stage. You can feel what the audience is feeling and sometimes it even informs your your performance in the live moment absolutely yeah and that's why i think that's why people like us we love the theater so much we love to go to the theater so much we love to be in theater um and it was it was exhilarating to sit in in the theater at the premiere and to feel the swells of the audience and to feel all these different because you're just totally going through it with this character she really goes through it in this film Mm. Um, and it was it was, in my opinion, and I say this with so much love for a very supportive producer team and cast and crew. It was one of the toughest shoots of my career, just be, be purely because of the conditions we shot in. Um, they shut down set at minus 40, which means we were still filming in minus 30. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a fight scene in outside in the exterior in the snow and like i really filmed that in minus like 35 ish 30 but it's so tremendous when you learn how much people take care of each other on a film set and it was like as soon as they called cut like a dozen of us would huddle like penguins and we'd Mm. like go shoulder to shoulder and we would kind of move around and we'd take turns in the middle and we would like keep each other warm in between these shots as warm as we could. Yeah, yeah. And, um, every I'm just so proud of everyone because, you know, when you watch a film, yes, you just see the cast, but behind every scene that you're watching in film, there's like fifty to a hundred people who are hiding and staying yeah. out of the camera view who are there to support and work on the project. So in I'm not an island in this film at all. There were mm-hmm. so many people who made sure that this film happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting as I was watching you sharing that and you talking, you know, the the beautiful image of huddling together penguin like uh but there's something that just that just vibrated across the screen for me as I was watching that about what I'm what I'm sensing, and I think I know already about you, about that that incredible power of you, uh, that you have, that you have, but also the value that you place in in the community of collaborators. Uh, has that always been the case for you? Yes, um, and I didn't I didn't understand that um, collaboration and community was so valuable to me until 
I became more worldly and I received the education to sort of have the vernacular to communicate what that was. Mm. But I do know that as a child, I felt joy and comfort and security in experiencing community in the sense of being a part of a group of people. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, and I, I, I'm a Métis Cree woman from East Prairie Métis Settlement and uh, Whitefish Lake Atikameg and Treaty 8. And I grew up in a ceremony family. So in my culture, it's, it's, um, and we were deep, deep in my culture. It, it wasn't something I just kind of like had a toe in the water. I was like, I was swimming in the ocean and the depths of my culture and I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I still love it to this day. I still practice to this day. And it's such a loving, our ceremonies are so loving. I think in my life, that's one of the places I've felt the truest and most profound love. And I've been fortunate enough to experience it with my community around me. And um, it's customary in my culture as a child to sit in silence and listen to an elder speak for four to five hours. I remember developing this immense patience as a child, um, especially when we were misbehaving. And ironically, it was a blessing to receive that discipline because when we were being wild or misbehaving, my parents were more likely to invite an elder over and say, you kids smarten up and you sit down and you listen to this man talk, you listen to this woman talk. You know, they would bring these elders into our home and we hosted ceremony for many, many years um, Mm. in my childhood. And I remember being like five years old and sitting there with my brother. And it's so funny because Native people who are from ceremony world will know what I'm talking about when you've. I, I know about like 20 different ways to sit because you, <laughs> your hips get tired, <laughs> your legs get sore and you, you're you constantly shifting your legs and moving, but you're quiet and you're listening. And <laughs> 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 so I, I, I did develop like a, a sort of like supernatural amount of patience as a child. Mm-hmm. Which it's not easy at first. And, um, and there was sort of a foray into these different types of ceremonies. And I think that that patience informed me to become a a wonderful student in art school where I started plugging myself into the performing arts and I plugged myself into um, playing basketball which when you're playing games and tournaments is a performance in and of itself and when I look back and I reflect on those times um, I remember just uh being part of a team being part of a community and loving that and then when I graduated from art school um you know and even when I was in art school I had started working as a film actor so being on set um was scary at first but I quickly made these correlations between the two experiences Uh where I was like oh I understand blocking on set because this is like a play in yeah. basketball this yeah. is different than the director coming to me and talking about blocking with me and we were learning that in school from you as well and it sort of it was very 
like second nature to me because after I was studying acting with you and directing with you, I was going to practice before and God bless Santa Shibley for giving me the discipline to wake up at five 30 every morning when I was a teenager at playing yeah. on her basketball team for morning practices. Cause now it's normal for me to wake up at four or five in the morning when I'm filming <laughs> a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, going to class, dance class and going to art, uh, acting, directing class with you and then going to a game. And like, so the discipline was there and the culture of being around a team and a community was there. And uh, so it wasn't so difficult. It, I, I remember early in my career, people on set would say, "What? like, when did you start? Like when? And I was like, well, this is my first show. This is my second show when I was a teenager. And they were like, why do you know, why do you know this? And I was like, well, I, I go to art school and I play basketball. And they said, oh, okay, okay. And and a lot of people in film who have that background, they do tend to excel and do really well. And a lot of them have either some sort of arts or team or like yeah. sports background. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry, I feel like I'm rambling, but I do. No, love no, you're not at all. <laughs> it's really lovely. The images, uh, uh, the the image of the of the strategy. You know, the, uh, the there is the element of competition, obviously in in the sport, perhaps more so, hopefully, than in the art. But when you when you describe that, the image that dropped for me immediately was Shibley drawing a play. You know that this is the blocking essentially of this moment. If everything goes right, if the improvisation uh, pieces all all fall in place. The other thing that uh, that you just brought up for me, and again, people listening may or may not have heard that that old, probably tired saying around film actors need to learn to hurry up and wait because there's all of these other things going on. But what I was hearing in what you were just saying is that from a youngest age, that you might actually have been learning to slow down and listen and learn, and it'll take the time it takes but it isn't a negative it's a positive it yes it really it really is and it's funny while you were saying that i heard my elders who i grew up with and my the aunties and the uncles who said two ears one mouth two ears <laughs> that was like drilled into me as a kid you have two ears you got one mouth and it's not a coincidence that creator yeah. did that <laughs> if you <laughs> you to talk and not listen he would have gave you two mouths in one ear <laughs> yeah and what what an important message for for us all to keep connecting to the wisdom that lives with us long after the 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 offer the original offer was made it was a blessing it was it was when i when i it, i mean everything's 2020 in hindsight but it was a blessing to, to, I certainly took it for granted. I mean, I, I was taught to be grateful for my life and the blessings of my life, but the more I traveled, the more I went about the world, um, I saw how privileged I was in my childhood to, to be surrounded by people who knew so much more about the world than I ever did or could. And I, and I had something to aspire towards. So I had, I, I've been phenomenally blessed. I've been blessed with these phenomenal role models mm. and these people who I was just fascinated by in my childhood. Um, like the teachers I had when I, I was recently reflecting on that. Um, I was recently reflecting on just cycles in my life. And I, I, I like to look for patterns in life and to see why things happen the way that they happened. 
And something I was reflecting on was just how tremendous uh, these people were in my life. And that I think a mistake, not a mistake, a, le a lesson that um, I learned, especially in my mid-20s, I would say, and that I think a lot of people learn in their life is that we often feel like the grass is greener on the other side, or we often feel like we're on the precipice of something better than what we have right now or what we've had in the past. And suffice it to say, for my life, I have found that some of the richest people I've met were actually in my past. And I get emotional thinking about it, but it's so true. Some of the best friends I've ever had in my life, I met when I was six. And it's like, you know, and, and you hear, I'm wary. I, you know, I have these two ears now, but I am wary of what goes in them mm. and what I keep, what I keep and what I let go of. Because, you know, so many people will say things like, uh, you know, this place isn't special. What's so good about wherever we are in life? What's so good about this place? I want to go to this huge metro metro city. I want to go to this big place. I want to go here and there without realizing. It's sort of like that concept of the diamond and the rough. I remember also in my 20s, I learned from people I was meeting along the way. Because um, I think a lot of people have the misconception of the metaphor of like what the diamond and the rough is about. And people seem to think that it has to do with finding a diamond or a gem of a person amongst a mess or like a mess mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. But really what it's actually about, uh, the sort of parable of it is that the person who was searching for the diamond traveled all across the world looking for it. And when they came home and dug at home, they actually found it in their own front yard or their own yeah. yard, their own home. And for me, that has been a lesson I've learned over and over again in my life. Yeah. Um, so I, I think people will realize it's they are richer than they think mm. and they are wealthier than they think with what they have around them. Through this whole conversation so far, you know, even, even uh, the plot uh, outline of Cold Road, um, I can't help but think of the verb you brought into our previous conversation when we were talking about your creative journey. You mm. spoke of comfort with the concept of navigation. And it and it just keeps weaving itself around everything that you've brought today into this room about the way in which we navigate through the people, the experiences, holding together the the, the things of great value, how we find home. And we maybe we need to go away in order to come back to a place of deeper appreciation. Um, and, and, and so I, I guess, you know, I, I'm curious around that you frame, you, you, you sort of find that frame to be helpful. You said, as it encourages you to be adventurous and to really listen to the invitation of the questions, where am I going today? What am I doing? Who am I being? So can you, can you, can we talk a little bit about, about navigation as a, a metaphor for, for, for your creative spirit? Yes. Um, yeah. The the conversation we had before, I think, I think I've been talking about finding space and silence on the inside. And ultimately, that the journey that I like to start in as, as the, the first step I like to take as a creative person is an unplanned step. 
it's a messy step. It's an unknowing step. And it's, it's funny. And it's so great to come full circle with you because you were one of the first people in my life who had taught me to make the leap, to take the jump, to just jump in. And I remember even as an actor, there was a class we had, uh, it must've been when I was about 16 and uh, we were working on monologues and um, I had done wonderful work of a monologue and we were sitting in a circle with class and there was probably, I'm sure 20 or 25 of us at this point. And um, you asked me to do it again. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Got it the first time. I was like, why? <laughs> what, what, you said it was great. Why did I was terrified of doing it again? Oh. Because I was like, but Mr. DC, it was so perfect. You said, and that's exactly why I need you to do it again. <laughs> I need you to be fearless and leaping into the unknown and how how will you know where you're gonna go and where you're gonna wind up if you don't try again and explore mm. and I was like oh no so I remember you and that was a major lesson for me in uh, you know that perfection is an illusion and that when you do a great job at something the first time you definitely should do it again mm. it, despite the fear of failure <laughs> despite the desire to be like mm holding it and being like, mm, no, it's good the way it is. And I'm yeah. never going to do that monologue again. Cause it was so perfect. the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's the invitation to say yes. And what else, what else yes. is there? What else is there? What else is there? Exploration. Yeah. Exploration. Yeah. It's the, it's like such a key to my creative process. And I think we spoke too about um, like where, what I, what I learned once I had left art school and sort of ventured forward in the world um, I worked with so many different acting teachers and and one of them had taught me about uh, working or approaching the character from negative space. So in terms of like people who are familiar with working with uh, or sculpting, but working in the negative space, like finding like what the character is not. And that requires exploration that is what Gen Zs call cringe, um, what my generation calls embarrassing, because <laughs> you can feel a sense of humility and humiliation in mm. making a fool of yourself in your bedroom with your monologue and doing silly things and doing things without thinking about what is anyone else going to think about this? And you can't care. You have to just liberate yourself from that thought of like, what are people going to think? And it doesn't matter because, because this is the process. Hmm. This is totally and completely the process. Um, so when I was discovering my work in this way in my early twenties, uh, like late teens, early twenties, um, I came across this quote, which I still will say to myself to this day, and it's by Michelangelo. And he said, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Hmm. And when I approach my work, it is as simple as in the beginning of my process, saying that to myself. And thank God, thank God for um, casting directors who understand that. I don't... <laughs> I don't know what it is. I'm starting to produce feature films now. Right. And I feel so much better as a producer, director, writer, 
when an actor walks into a session with the sides in their hands. I feel so much more secure about what we're about to explore together. And I understand that we're in the very beginning of the process. Yeah. We're in the very beginning. And why, and I will say this as many times as I can until it changes, why in Canada do we expect actors to be pitch perfect and off book in the first audition? Why do we even expect that in the callback? And there's there are casting directors in Canada who are like, nope, I want to see you with those sides in your hand. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. So in a, I notice in the States, it's it's so acceptable to see people with the sides in their hand in their audition with their audition. And um and in the beginning, I think just by Going through art school and when you're a theater actor, you become a unit. You're just a unit. You're like a machine. You're like, I can. And I remember you taught me how to learn a monologue in 10 minutes and I could do it like I could walk around with a monologue and I'd have it off book. But then at one point in my career, in my 20s, I hit a wall. I actually hit a wall in that process where I was like, okay, I'm creating a block in myself now when I'm off book too fast and I didn't know why and it was terrifying and I was like oh god what would my teachers think of me showing up to auditions not being off book oh my god oh my god what am I doing and then I'd show up and I'd be like okay I'm just gonna try it I'm gonna try it and I'd show up to auditions not off book and oh it was like a damn breaking open and that that took like months or a couple years for me to get uh, I plateaued I plateaued I wasn't booking I wasn't feeling the 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 buzz I wasn't feeling the creative spirit channeling I wasn't feeling like the vessel that I typically was and that's that's not by mistake that's part of the process too and that frustration where you're an actor and you leave an audition and you feel like crap and you're crying yourself to sleep and you're crying in the shower when you wake up the next morning and you're like, what was I thinking? No one will ask me to audition for anything ever again. Oh my God. Unfortunately, those ugly emotions are part of the process too. Yeah. Not just in terms of uh, of of molding or exploring and dis discovering and finding a character, but in molding your career you know, in, 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 in growing as an actor in your career as well, you have to make mistakes. You mm -hmm. have to screw up. I've made a fool of myself more times than I can count as an actor, a writer, a producer, and a director. And I will continue to make mistakes because we're human and I have to make those mistakes. And, um, you know, um, a late friend of mine who we lost way too, he was way too young he was a playwright, an actor. He was like the most gorgeous kind of in in like thespian and indigenous artist mm. he looked for in his work and his craft and he cared about craft. And um, one time I was just talking about life and we were working on a play together and we were talking about exploration and what we do. And he said, you're navigating Rose. Mm. And he, it was like I was searching for a word to describe what I was talking about. He said, navigation. He said, you're navigating. And I was like, oh, my God. And I just, you know, I still think of him to this day and I miss him dearly. He's a great guy. And um, and his proof also, also, he is proof that you can be on this grind and not realize that you are affecting hundreds or thousands of people. 
um, after he passed, the whole community just cried out in grief and in love for this tremendous soul. And I don't, I don't think or know that I don't know. And it's not my business to know, but it's like, I don't think we realize how much we affect people in this work. And I know he affected me. And so what he affected me in a part of the way that I respect and honor any of my friends who have passed is to continue my work with the teachings that I've received from them, even in friendship, mm. you know, even in friend. And he said it to me so casually, but that was like seven, eight years ago. And to this day, I talk about myself as a navigator now. Yeah. yeah. So I'm conscious of the fact that we've, we've come We've come into a couple of times this zone of your acknowledgement of the wisdom that has been shared with you. What are you hoping that you are paying to the next generation, the oh. ones that are now looking to you, just as you continue to look to incredible role models, both in your industry, the Tantu Cardinals, yes. um, you know, uh, Lily Gladstone, uh, just just having this incredibly and deserving platform to be able to say, here I am. And so you're here too. You're here now in this position. What are you hoping you're laying down? I, um, oh, wow. Wow. You know, it's, it's such a journey. It's such a journey. And I understand now as I mature as a creative person that, uh, and I, I think when I was learning from you and other phenomenal teachers at art school, it was sort of ingrained in the lessons we were learning in school, um, the importance and the honor of what we're doing here. And that it was almost, I guess, almost disrespectful to say, well, it's not rocket science. And it's like, it might not be rocket science, but it's important. And in my journey since then, I, I, I would hear people say, well, we're not saving lives here. And I'm like, oh, yes, but we are. We are. And, and I say that with love and respect um, for people like, you know, I, I remember reading an article in the past couple of years where um, you know, a cancer survivor encountered Jennifer Aniston or a friend of hers encountered Jennifer Aniston and said, I just need her to know that friends kept me alive at the worst time in my life. And that laughter is medicine. Hmm. And that what we experience as an audience when we are engaging in story is medicine. And um, it's just, you know, and it, it it's so profound to sort of, you know, realize or have an epiphany about having this childhood and ceremony and learning the gift of what medicine can do and heal, how it can heal people. And learning and observing and witnessing what that words are medicine. And that the way you speak is as important as what you do and the way you think is as important as how you speak. And uh, and by God, I, I will say what we are doing is so important. It is so, so important. And 
you know, I know that in my life, when I've bottomed out, so to speak, um, shows kept me going. And there's a reason that human beings are in this sort of crux of, 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 of unknowing. Like our society is very much in a place of unknowing right now. And we're scared. And I think that the way people are behaving right now is because they're scared, but they don't want to admit it. And um, there's a reason people are binge watching shows right now. And story has saved lives time and again. So we might not be the doctors at the ER and we might not be the surgeons and we might not be the rocket scientists, but what we do is important and it is valuable. And that too is a journey. That too is a journey. Um, but anyways, there's there's other things I want to say too in regard to the influencers that you're speaking of because they are so important. And I, I remember I was talking about... Um, because I was in a First Nations program, the OASIS program, before I had gone to Vic. And it was really this enriched cultural experience where we as young Indigenous people in Edmonton, Treaty 6 territory, were, um, I don't want to say reconnecting to our culture. For some, it was reconnecting. But for a lot of us, it was just maintaining our mm, cultural deepening. practice, deepening it. And the teachers I had, the teacher assistants, the knowledge they had, and they were influencers before influencing was a thing. Mm. This was before the day and age of social media. And for them, it was about going out to a school. It was about talking to youth and talking to young people about life and what it is. And and now that I grow and I mature, I see, and and I actually wasn't taught or talk to about residential school till I was 16. So before I was 16, I heard whispers. There was like adults like who would whisper about it. And you know, when you're a kid and you're curious and you're nosy and you know, you got two ears. You got two ears. <laughs> I got two ears. And I'm <laughs> one for listening to shouting and one for listening to whispering and which one do we pay most nosy. attention to? <laughs> Being nosy. Yeah. And I heard whispers of the mission and boarding school, residential school. And now as an adult, I know that whispering was a wall. It was a dam of protection for my generation. And they were protecting us from the things they had to hold in their time, the things they had to hold and experience in their day and age, and that they were like spiritual, energetic, artistic, creative warriors who were holding on, holding down the front line so my generation could go further and farther and they said that to us they it was like these seeds they planted in us they said you're going to go so far every single one of you is going to go so much farther than any of us did and um they talked to us like we mattered they talked to us like like we were special like we were important like we mattered and that was important and I, I, I hope, I hope, um, you know, and it, and it, it, this all comes to mind too, because I think I had mentioned to you, I'm staying with um, a dear friend of mine, uh, Rachel George, who is a filmmaker as well, and who's an actress and just an incredible artist. Um, and she's the great granddaughter of Chief Dan George, and right. um, he has shared stories with me, and they're not, they're not necessarily mine to share. That's another mm -hmm. conversation that I think she could have or would have. Um, but suffice it to say, I have learned from people like 
you know, Tantu Cardinal and people like Carmen Moore and people like Graham Greene, um, who were, I mean, he is just this icon. Um, you know, he was one of the first people, I think, Indigenous people to receive an acting nomination for an Academy Award. Yeah. And just the fact that these incredible people took the time to even share their their expertise on the craft um, and their stories about what they had to overcome. So when when we see these incredible artists like Lily Gladstone winning a Golden Globe and making making history it's it's in my generation because I, th I think she and I are we're about the same generation um I think what our generation does understand and what we are bringing with us and what she has said as well publicly is that we, we are standing on the shoulder of giants the shoulders of giants and I know and I feel that in my path personally and I feel that in my craft um that I, I'm not an island and that there are people who came before me and who blazed a trail and who fought like Tantu Cardinal fought tooth and nail for decades. <laughs> and I was so lucky she ever mentored me. I, I remember a time when I, I think I called her crying. I was going through something and she said, Oh Rose, she said, call me in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> And I tease her about it. I'm like, oh my God, do you remember that time I called you crying and you were like, you know, and she, and it was, and she said it with love. It was with yeah. love and with, you know, humor. She was humoring me. And uh, it just kind of, it was kind of one of those things like just, you know, get back up, dust yourself yeah. off, keep going, keep yeah. going. She was humoring you, but she was also seeing you and knowing you, mm -hmm. recognizing perhaps self but honoring you as yourself your unique and beautiful being yeah she's she's very much um i see her as the matriarch of mm. all of us and i think what i was saying earlier about teachers um who i had worked with is that they they looked so concerned and worried that my generation wasn't taking this seriously and I remember having, you know, like I'd spent, uh, I'm in Vancouver now and it's, it's very, this is a very full circle experience. And one of the teachers I had here, I had done a scene and he seemed off a little bit this one day I was working with him. Tremendous, tremendous person and, you know, um, student of the craft and teacher of the craft. And um, I, we did our scene and it was not great. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't great. want you to see it again <laughs> it not, no it was like okay I'm definitely doing this again because that was um whoo even I knew I was like that was not and and it, it was mediocre it was mediocre at best and uh and he kind of he kind of he gave us our notes he gave us our notes and I just inside of me I was like god I feel like I'm so close to cracking this nut of this scene and it, I don't know what it is, but I know that I can prove that I can do this scene. And it's not even necessarily about him. I knew that he was also a fellow captain and he was a fellow craftsperson who was just like, let's crack this nut. And then we did it. And it was that gorgeous feeling you feel as an actor when you feel like you're shining and you're gold and you're crying and it's beautiful and it's transcendent. And, and he was like, thank you. He was like, thank you. This I needed this. You reminded me why I do what I do. 
He said, you, you, you and your scene partner, you reminded me why I do what I do. And then he talked to the whole class about, again, um, why it is so important what, what, what we do and that there is, there is a craft and there is, um, a structure to story and to scenes and to scene study. So I'm starting to understand that I did mm. it before, but mm. now I do because I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared of the, and I, I shouldn't be scared. <laughs> I'm scared of other people not taking, and I, I feel embarrassed and small to say it, but I'm scared of people not taking the craft as seriously as those before them did. Mm. It might be an irrational fear. It might be, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm start, I am starting to understand my teachers a lot more and deeper mm. i guess mm. um so i do hope that i teach and inspire others to study mm. to be a student of the craft to believe in the craftsmanship of what we're doing you might not be able to physically see a product you might not be able to see a bespoke leather shoe made by a shoemaker in london but when you're watching film in these shows that are entertaining there is that is the shoe that is the art that is the craft and i just don't want people to lose sight of it you know yeah what i'm hearing as well is the stones that were dropped into your pool and have rippled out and you've gone on that journey are coming back for you to re reconnect to uh, that even as you're saying it may be irrational even as i'm hearing you say vulnerably i'm afraid that others might not I'm hearing you in the learning place. I'm hearing you with the two ears and the one mouth saying, there's more, there's more for me to hear, but more, not just hear, but experience. And there is craft and the other piece that you said so beautifully, which is the sacred, the sacred, the magic of the story itself. And that blending, that coming together, right? We can be, we can aim for mastery. But it's it, it, when when we get there, we must we must start again or stop. And I'm hearing you not willing to stop, which is beautiful, which is really lovely. I have to, to see. do the monologue again, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, but where I would love to know, just before we kind of bring this all to a to a close, is you're there in Vancouver, full circle back. You were there for a world premiere. We're in this lovely conversation today, but your work is not done because you are heading into post-production for your own personal uh, first, correct? That producing yes. and writing and directing of a feature. My first, my first creative baby, my first feature film. I'm in post-production for it. And um, it's been a arduous labor, you know, it, a friend of mine who worked on the project with me, Jesse Anthony, who is this incredible filmmaker. Uh, she made the film uh, Brother I Cry, uh, which is a tribute and an honor to incarcerated Indigenous men and the matriarchs who love them and care for them from home. And she was on my project and she said, you know, Rose um because she she already made her first she this was not her first rodeo so to speak mm -hmm. and she said rose 
it is like having a baby and mm. uh, and I hope she's okay with me sharing that I hope I'm not mm. oversharing but I think she would say the same thing and she would have her own story to tell of course um, so anyone who's interested in these filmmakers and these people I'm talking about, please go look them up because they've affected me in profound ways. And I know they'll affect you in profound ways. And she said, Rose, it, it is like having a baby. And she said, and a lot of people don't understand that. So you do go through the quote unquote postpartum depression. And that's a wow. real thing as a creative person. The postpartum depression is, 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 and I don't mean to, I hope any woman who has gone through that mm -hmm. in real life with a real genuine human being child, I, I'm not trying to take away from their experience, Understood. Um, but it's just creatively you, you go through it, you go through mm -hmm. a pregnancy, you go through the, the conception, the pregnancy, um, the labor, the birth, and then after the birth, the the rest and the exhaustion and the sleepless nights, and then you go through a postpartum depression. And um, so my film is like, and it's one of my favorite things that I want to hand to anyone out there telling story is that in the medium of film, and TV is that, or especially with film, certainly with film, um, you write a film, you shoot a film, and you edit a film. So every time you make a film, you're creating three movies. And I've learned the hard way. Wow. Um, the people who see the film you write are not going to be happy with the film that you shoot. The people that you shot the film with are not going to be happy with the film that you edit. Hopefully the people you edited the film with will just, I've learned that I love post-production. Post-production is like laying on this like cloud of gorgeousness. And it's like people who are like, get over here, get on. I know you just came home from war. You get under this wing and you, and I, I love post and all the people <laughs> who are in post, I just need you to know you are the unsung heroes and I love you all so much. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just being received, like you're being received. They're swaddling me and I'm mm. I'm a big emotional baby and wreck right now and they're swaddling me in the blanket and they're like, calm down and come over here and let's finish this movie. And um yeah, so I'm I'm very excited though. I'm very excited. It's uh it's a coming of age story. It's about two exes who rekindle their love on the night of their grad in their small town in northern Alberta. Hmm. All hell breaks loose because of it. And they go on a an adventure with their sort of wallflower co-ed crew. And it's a night of debauchery and youthfulness and all those things that we miss and are nostalgic about as adults. And uh I'm excited for everyone to see it. It was shot beautifully, if I do say so myself. And that means that the DP, uh, Ian Seabrook, was absolutely incredible. And he is so immensely talented. Um, and the performances are there. The cat, Thank God the casting worked out um, the way that I had hoped and wished for. Um, you know, what What can I say? I love it. It's my baby. I love it. And it's, I, I, it's so typical as a filmmaker to just love what you create. You know how everyone loves their kid and their kid's like sure. a player and they know their kid's going to be in the NHL. And it's like. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely place to be in this moment, even as you're, even as you're acknowledging the need to be swaddled. <laughs> 
I so need to be right? swallowed. We are not. Right now. We are not alone. Right. Uh, and to juggle. I wish yeah. you know when we were in theater class back in the day. I could not juggle to save my life. <laughs> and I, I'm not. I don't know that I'm a great juggler professionally. I'm trying. Um, <laughs> I think there's like five balls right now, and there should be two or three because I'm yeah. like, oh my god. Oh, my. so yeah. But I just, um, I just love to create. And I just love story and I love film and I love theater and I love, I love what I do. And that's why mm -hmm. I keep, I, I called up my producer mentor after the, the throws and the, 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 the after the battle, so to speak. And, and I say that with love because, yeah. you know, I, I think there's over 150 people who made this film come true. So, and I just want them all to know, I love every single one of them, but it does feel like battle when you get out of it. And I called my producer mentor and I was like, Hey, she said, hi. And I, you know, how are you checked in? And I was like, would you believe it? I'm developing my next one. She said, yep, you are. Cause mm -hmm. we're crazy. And that's what we do. Yeah. You know, you, you went through the first baby and you had the friend. Now you're going to go make the other baby and you're going to, you know, yeah. it's like build oh, the family. I'm building my family, but mm -hmm. it's beautiful. It's like in, in the bigger scheme of it all in the, in the bigger picture, um, you know, unfortunately I didn't gain perspective in life until I was about 29, but in the bigger picture of it all, it is so beautiful. Mm. The, the pain, yeah. the sleepless nights and the exhaustion, but there's so much love there and there's so much yeah. care. And I think in this industry, people are just so passionate about what they do. They express it in different ways. They navigate it in different ways. But I think at the bottom line, anyone who, first of all, you got to be kind of crazy to work in the film industry anyway. And we all know that because who gets up at four in the morning every day to go work a 12 hour day and drive an hour commute to like, we get it. We're like, this is a very specific breed of people, but all of these people care so deeply about story and about mm. what we're creating and um and 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 i'm so grateful for mm. all of it. i really am yes it's hard work but i'm hearing you say it's heart work yes mm. there you are with your one-liners again <laughs> it's not mine that one's not mine my 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 partner tammy my life journey mate uh yeah. i think coined that one and it just it says it all it does. It's heart work. Thank you, Tammy, for that. Oh, my goodness. That's gold. <laughs> Just as we're bringing this into a close, um, and I don't want the conversation to end, but there, there it is. Um, what as you... As you imagine yourself, we 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 brought into the conversation the, the, the beautiful, iconic um, uh, Tantu Cardinal. If you jumped to the wise woman of Rose, 30 years, maybe she said, call me in 30, but that was some time ago. I dare say it wasn't 30 years ago, but, 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 but leap yourself 30 from now. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and someone is, is picking up the phone in tears, a young woman a young artist perhaps indigenous perhaps not just a young woman inspired by you mm. what will you what will be the most important thing 
that you hope you'll be able to leave her with when she hangs up that phone? That's a really great question. I'm going to find my space in order to provide an answer. You are the water flowing in the river. And sometimes that's all you can be. Beautiful. And thank you for bringing your your water, your stream, your river um, into our into our conversation and into my presence again today. The Ellipses Thinking Podcast is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network and is produced by Greg and Jordan Dowler-Coltman. The show's theme music has been generously provided by Jordan Hart. And if you're interested in learning more about the ideas behind Ellipses Thinking, please visit dowlercoltman.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island, I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years, their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space.